Today I want to share with you about covenants, specifically two covenants. But we'll lay a foundation before we get into this about a couple of things. Have you ever thought what a covenant is and if you are involved in any? Well, let me say if you're married to someone, you have established a covenant. Not a contract, but a covenant. When a man marries a woman, it's not a two-way covenant, it's a three-way covenant. Because it's made between the two of them and God. If you have doubt about that, read the second chapter of the book of Malachi. It's a covenant. It's a good example of what a covenant is. So a covenant transcends a contract. It's an agreement made between two or more parties where there is expected behavior on both or all parties involved. Now, in the book of Genesis chapter 1 that's already been covered, verse 26 to 28, God gave a five-fold mandate to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish, subdue, have dominion over. Now, many people in commentaries call that the Adamic covenant, but the word covenant is never used with that. It's a mandate that God gave that still, folks, is in existence today. That mandate is still in existence. So if I had a chart up here, I would have that mandate and drawing a line all the way down to the bottom of the chart because it's still in force as long as humanity exists. The first use of covenant is found in the book of Genesis chapter 6 and verse 18 in relationship to Noah's covenant, the Noahic covenant. You may recall all the things and ramifications and things that happened because of sin had multiplied so greatly. Then God said, I'm going to destroy. But, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, the Bible says. And so he and his family were preserved and God made a covenant beginning in chapter 6 all the way through chapter 9 with him and his descendants. And as a result of that, you may recall, God put a rainbow that was a sign of the covenant. Have you seen any rainbows recently? That means a covenant is still in existence. So the Noahic covenant is still working today. It would be a line going down to the bottom of the chart saying that that is still in force today. And then after Noah was the one that we're first coming to, and that is the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham. You go to chapter 15 of Genesis, you'll find that first part of that covenant. But it's further amplified in chapter 17, that where he went into more depths about it. When he was 99 years old, God appeared to him and God said, I'm going to make your descendants like the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven. Well, he said that in chapter 15, but he amplified it further. And Abraham, the Bible says, believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now, hang on to that because that's very, very important. Just like the rainbow was indicative of Noah's covenant, Faith is indicative of the Abrahamic covenant. Faith. Abraham believed and there was faith. 
Now, momentarily, I'll set that aside and go to the next covenant, which was the Mosaic Covenant, which was more limited than the first two that we've alluded to. It's much more limited. It was started out with a group of people that God would use through whom Messiah would come. God had to have a way to get His Son Jesus into humanity so He could qualify to be our sacrifice for sin. So God picked out people. Now, the Mosaic Covenant came off of the Abrahamic Covenant. All right, you follow me? We had, we had Noah, then we have Abraham, and now we have the Mosaic. Mosaic is not on the same grounds as the first two. It's, it is more limited. But out of that then comes other covenants. There's the Davidic, David Covenant, which is again more limited about his descendants. And there's always conditions. When God makes a covenant with somebody, he, he's, he's the originator of it. He starts it, but he says, I'll make a covenant with you. And he tells the people under that covenant what he's going to do. But they have some responses that have to be made to that covenant. If they want to enjoy that covenant to the full, they have some responsibilities. God will for sure keep His covenant. He always will keep His covenant. He said in the Bible He would keep His word for thousands generations. From everlasting to everlasting, He's God. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. So just know this, if God makes a statement, He'll keep His. Now, the, the real problem is sometimes we don't keep our side of it. And therefore, we don't get into all that God has for us. So God made a covenant with Abraham. He said to him, I will make you a great nation. I'll make you a great people. He said, kings will come from you. Countries would come from you. The three major religions in the world today all claim Abraham as their father. Christianity, Judaism, and Muslim, Muslim religion. All go back to Abraham. If you go to Israel, you'll find that the city of Jerusalem is divided in three main portions. The Christian portion, the Jewish portion, and the Muslim portion of that one city. So what are we saying? We're saying God made a covenant with Abraham. Different people with different mindsets had their own beliefs and responses to that covenant. But the key to it is that God made it to Abraham and to his seed. Now, let's go on to the new covenant. By the way, I don't, a lot of people don't realize this, but the new covenant is, is a branch out of the Abrahamic covenant. It goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. The new covenant skips the Mosaic covenant and goes to the Abrahamic covenant. That's where you and I come in. Did you realize that? That may be new to somebody here today. You, in the new covenant, your covenant got its start with Abraham. It did not get its start with Moses. It got its start with Abraham. It predates the Mosaic covenant. Now, is there some connection between the two? Obviously. Absolutely. Is it important to know some facts about the Mosaic Covenant? Obviously, because it has a lot of types and shadows of Jesus and His covenant, which was to come. But we are not 
uh, under the terms of the ceremonial law mentioned under the Mosaic Covenant. We do not have to keep feast days. Thank God. We do not have to keep the holy days though they, the way they were required to do so. Thank God for that. Because all of them were types and shadows for he who was to come, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. In the book of Matthew chapter 5, I believe it's verse 17, Jesus said himself on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I did not come to destroy the law, talking about the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. He said, I came to fulfill it. Remember that? He didn't come to destroy it and he didn't destroy it. He fulfilled all the types and shadows and what that law was pointing to. And I'm glad that we're living under the new covenant today. If you think about that a little bit, you'll be glad as well. Let's go to the book of Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to go quickly through about 20 verses of scripture. You'll see them up on the, the monitor up above me. But I want to point out some things that's important for us to get a hold of. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. The word believe and the word faith are found four times in those verses. You know why? Because faith is the sign of the Abrahamic and the new covenant. It's faith. You got a rainbow for Noah. You got circumcision for Mosaic. And you got faith for the Abrahamic and the new covenant. Faith is indicative of that covenant. It's unique for those covenants. For as of many are of the works of the law are under the curse... For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Faith again. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How? Through faith. Faith is how you enter in to the new covenant. The Mosaic, I mean the Abrahamic covenant. Not the Mosaic covenant. Abrahamic and the new covenant, it is by faith. It's by faith. And guess how you get faith? It's a gift from God. For by grace are you saved through works and... Didn't say that. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. The very sign of the covenant... God gives it to us by faith, the faith to believe so that we can receive whatever the provision was. You and I have it. Why am I making this and stressing this so much? Because that's the covenant you and I live in. If, you're going to, if a man and a woman are going to get married, they need to know what vow they're making. Hello? Hello? 
And I suggest, just to make a little side trip here, I suggest that a lot of people who have gotten married didn't know what they were agreeing to. That's why it didn't last. Hello? Say amen or owe me one or the other. Because they didn't know what their agreement was. When you made the covenant, it was to that individual and God was involved in that. You say, well, I wasn't even a Christian then. didn't make any difference. See, God made the covenant. You didn't. I'm talking about initially. He was the originator of the covenant, not you and I or the parties involved in the wedding. He was the originator of the covenant. You just came together in that covenant and he puts his stamp on it. Okay? So, because we don't know what's involved in our covenant, lots of times we don't live in it. We don't fulfill our responsibilities in that covenant. Another reason I want to put emphasis on the new covenant is because I've run up on increasing amount of Christians who still want to live under the terms of the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. And that's not good. That's not good. I'm talking about, you know, well, I believe I've got to keep the feast days and I believe I've got to do this and Rosh Hashanah and this and that and the other. No, no, that's not a part of the new covenant. Jesus fulfilled those things already. Those things are types and shadows of his intercessory work on the cross for us. You and I don't have to keep stuff like that. Actually, out of the Ten Commandments, do you know that only nine of them are repeated in the New Covenant? There's not ten commandments required under the New Covenant. There's nine. There's one that's never repeated as a requirement. Anybody know what it is? Keep the Sabbath day holy. It's not a requirement under the New Covenant. So that means I don't have to go to church? Didn't say that. Didn't say that. You see, my point is, you don't have to keep the ceremonial law. Now, the moral law of God, God is always the same. His morality never changes. It was the same in creation past, in all the other covenants made in, and mentioned in the Bible, and it'll be the same through all eternity future. His character never changes. All right? What was wrong then is wrong now in the sight of God. If he said it's wrong, it's wrong. And that's not going to change. But the ceremonial part of it, where you got to do this, you got to make this sacrifice, you got, nope, don't have to do that. Now, there are some things that are mentioned under the Mosaic Covenant that are re-mentioned under the New Covenant that are expectations that God has, and yes, we do that. But the other part that a lot of Christians get involved in, if you study Scripture specifically to that point, you might discover that that's not a requirement. Let's go on again into verse 15. Brethren, I speak to the, in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it's confirmed, no one knows or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed, not seeds, were the promise made. He did not say into seeds, but as, as of many, but as of one. To your seed, who is Christ. When He's, when God said to Abraham, I'm doing this for your descendants or your, if you use the word 
seed, he wasn't talking about multiple people of generations of people. He was talking about Jesus Christ to your seed. You ever heard that song? And this was back in the 70s. And I, I know I'm old, but there's a, I think it was David Ingalls that wrote the song, I'm of the seed of Abraham. There's some people that were around in those days may have heard that. He was talking about Jesus. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. And guess who we have redemption through? Jesus. So the promise he made to Abraham, I'm going to do this to your seed, that's Jesus, and that's how it's applicable to you and I today. The promises. And just as Abraham believed by faith and was accounted for righteous, you and I do the same. I say that the law was 430 years later, that is the law of Moses after Abraham's covenant was instituted, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect for if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And you and I still enter into that covenant today. The more I find out about what's involved in the new covenant, the more excited I get. Thank God. You know, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that was a messy covenant. How would you like to kill goats every day? Or offer sheep offerings or turtle dove offerings? That's a bloody business. And you know, only certain people could approach God. If you approach God and you weren't supposed to, look out. Especially if you tried to go into the holy place or the holy of holies. Even the high priest that went in once a year, they put a rope around his ankle to drag him out in case God struck him dead while he was in there. That's a dangerous business to be in. You better be right before you go in. But you know what? Jesus paid the sacrifice for us. You know what he says to us? Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He doesn't say you got to have an ankle around your knee, uh, ankle, a rope around it before you go into the presence of God. He says, come boldly. Come boldly. Come now. Anytime, come. See, he could only do it at a certain time. You can come into God's presence, manifest presence at any time. Let's go on down to the next verse. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression till the seed, namely Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now the mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Why do we have the law? Why was it given? Well, because they couldn't keep it. It was to show that we were sinful, that humanity was sinful. Uh, Paul said the same in the book of Romans. He said that the law was holy, just, and good. But it was through weakness of the flesh that man couldn't keep its requirements. God had promises. Man had responsibilities to do certain things. God always kept his promise. They couldn't meet their conditions. The law was holy. It was good. But they couldn't do it. Ah, we got to have a way then. we got to have a provision made for us. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. 
Therefore, the law was our tutor, King James, and here we might insert the word school bus driver. That's modern-day parlance for the same idea here, that the person driving the bus is the one that's going to get you to your destination. Right? He said the law was our school bus driver to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Why was the law given? To show us that we were sinful. How would you have known what sin? Except the law said you're not supposed to do it. What Paul said in the book of Romans again. He said, you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to do this. But we couldn't keep it. So we had to have a sacrifice that could make a way possible of which all of that was pointing to Jesus Christ. You see, even at the best, the Mosaic law, blood sacrifices, that was a type and shadow. And it could never take away sin, according to the book of Hebrews. The law and all those sacrifices could never take away sin. They could merely cover it temporarily. But you know what the blood of Jesus does? It cleanses us from sin. That means we're cleansed. Thank you, Jesus. See, even the writer of Hebrews indicated again in that same passage I just alluded to, he said, if the blood of the sacrifices, that is the, under the Mosaic law, if the blood of the sacrifice could have cleansed from sin, there would have been no longer a consciousness of it. Read Hebrews. I believe it's chapter 10. When you and I come to Christ and we make him the Lord of our life, our sin gets forgiven, past, present, and future. One sacrifice one shedding of perfect blood is sufficient to take care of all of your sin, past, present, and future. Jesus only died and shed it one time. He's never going to do it again. It was sufficient for all time, for all humanity, for whomever will believe and make Jesus Lord. One sacrifice. Whether it was a sin of omission, a sin of commission, whether you didn't intend to sin or you intended to sin, even that is forgiven by the same blood. Isn't that good news? So that you can get up off of your face after you've turned your life over to God, stand up no matter what the severity of the sin was, you get up off of it and you're cleansed. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Totally gone. If you go to God and say, God, don't you remember when I did? He says, don't know what you're talking about. Now, that's my translation. Scripture says he remembers it no more. He cast it behind his back. He cast it as far as the east is from the west. He cast it into the depths of the sea. What's he saying? He don't know anything about it. He dealt with it. It's gone. It's done. No more consciousness of sin comes with a new covenant of the blood of Jesus. So, well, I'm conscious of how bad I am all the time. Well, you don't have to be. If you know you're forgiven and the enemy comes along and accuses you of something you did, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to say, no, Mr. Devil. 
I was that. I'm not that anymore. I did that back then, but the blood of Jesus took care of that. And I tell you to leave that. Be gone from me. I refuse to believe that anymore. And you know what will happen if you take that approach to accusations of the enemy, namely in your thoughts, usually what happens? You'll see yourself differently. You'll identify with the new creation and not the old. You identify with who you are in Christ, not who you used to be in the flesh. What did Paul say? Paul said, I don't know anybody after the flesh anymore. He said, I used to know people after the flesh. I even knew religion. I even knew Christ after the flesh. But he said, I don't know him that way anymore. Why? He saw from the new creation position. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Let me suggest something. That you read Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. Read it through several times and you will discover how much better the new covenant is than the Mosaic was. You'll find that you're under a better priesthood. It's not an earthly priesthood, it's Jesus' priesthood. You'll find that you have a better hope. Chapter 7, verse 19. Established on better promises. You'll find that you have a better guarantee. 722 Hebrews. That means the guarantee is Jesus and His work. You'll find that the covenant overall is better. That's chapter 8, verse 6. And 8.13, you'll find that the Mosaic law and its requirements for you today is the scripture says, obsolete. And what's obsolete is ready to be removed and replaced. You live not under the terms of that, but under the terms of the new covenant. And what we're talking about is not just semantics, it's truth that works in our everyday life. Now, let me tell you how you can experience the new covenant. Number one, you need to be born again and make Jesus the Lord of your life. None of the good things we're talking about will work until you make Jesus the Lord of your life. You say, well, I've been religious all my life. That may be part of the problem. If you're religious without the life of God, that is part of the problem. You can be a church member and be lost. The first church I pastored, one of my chief deacons got born again while I was there. That's a shock. He was a good man. He was raised in a Christian home. He went to church three times a week from the time he was an infant. He became, and he was about 35 at this time, he'd been uh, made a, a deacon. And uh, he was a good guy. Good guy. Had a good attitude about things. But one day, an invitation was given. He came forward and he told me, he said, I'm lost. I said, Ken, what do you mean you're lost? He said, I don't know Jesus, really, is my Lord. You know, it took us a while to get him born again. Why? Because we had to get through a bunch of stuff where he thought certain things made him born again without really making Jesus the Lord of his life. But somewhere around 2 o'clock that next morning, this was on a, a Sunday night, I believe it was, about 2 o'clock on Monday morning, he finally saw who Jesus really was and made him the Lord of his life. You said, well, did it make a difference? Huge difference. You can be religious. You can be a church member and be lost. 
You have to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Number one, if you want to experience the new covenant, do that. Number two, if you want to experience the new covenant, make sure you have your own personal Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the blessings of the new covenant. It's one of the blessings of the new covenant is Pentecost. So you need to have your own personal one. If you haven't had one, how did I receive it? How did you receive Jesus as Lord? By faith. That's what you do about Pentecost. The Spirit of God has already been poured out. You don't have to wait for Him to pour it out. You don't have to tarry for Him to pour it out. He already poured out. It's called the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God has already been poured out. What you and I need to do is receive. I had a struggle with that for a year. Here I was this Baptist pastor and I started studying Scripture. That'll get you in trouble every time. I started studying Scripture for myself along with two other pastors. And, and we would get together and study the Bible. Read Scripture. And we came to the conclusion, even though that Bible college taught, it didn't happen anymore. Anybody that spoke in tongues, they said, was psychologically crazy or demonized. And I, we wasn't even sure they believed in demons until it came to the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But they said you were demonized if you thought that was reality. But you know, we said, I don't care what the theology department said. I don't care what Dr. So-and-so said. The Bible says... This promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off. And I felt like I was pretty far off. So that means I qualify. But I had to renew my mind. Over, I read scripture over and over again. I said, but what about this? What about that? What about this other? Those were my questions. And every time I would think, you know, I really need to find out what this book says. So for a year, I did a study. I started in Genesis 1 and verse 2 where it said the Spirit of God moved over the face of the water. I started there and went to Revelation 22 where it said the Spirit and the bride say come. Whosoever will, let him come. Take of the water of life freely. From one end to the other, it took me a year to do it. And I wrote down in longhand on legal size paper before computers, folks. I didn't even have a typewriter at the time. Longhand. I wrote every verse that mentioned spirit. There's lots of them. And you know, I, got, I came out of that knowing, not guessing, but knowing that the day of Pentecost was for every believer. Every believer. I'm one of those every. That means it's for me. And I received it. By faith. I tried to fast and get the baptism. Because I read someplace where some Pentecostal someplace said he went on a three-day fast and God filled him with the Holy Spirit. So I went on a three-day fast and all I got was hungry. <laughs> I read another testimony where it said you got to get sanctified first. So I thought that was a special second or third work of grace. And so I tried to get sanctified. I got confused. Finally, one day I said, bless God, I take the Bible at its word and I'm going to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit and I'm not only going to get part of it, I'm going to get all of it. I made that commitment on a Thursday afternoon. I was pastoring a church at that time. I was a grand old age of 19. 
Started pastoring right after I turned 18. Started preaching when I was 17. But I said, I'm, I'm going to receive this right now by faith. And I said these words to God in my prayer. I said, Lord, I'm claiming the baptism in the Holy Ghost right now today, Thursday afternoon, about 3 o'clock. And if somebody asks me on Sunday morning if I've got it, I'm going to tell them yes, and you better make sure I do. All right. Hallelujah. I'm sure God got a good chuckle out of that, just like you did. Sunday morning, I'm driving. I'm still living at home. This is before Debbie and I were married. I was living with my mom and dad, and I had about a 20-mile 20, 20 drive to the church where I pastored. I got my little car, and I'm driving to church, and I have the radio turned on. To my brother, my older brother, had a radio program that, on this particular channel, and I'm listening to his radio program on my way to church. Before he preached, he had a song playing, and it was... It's real, it's real, oh, I know. Thank God the doubts are settled for it's real, it's real. That's just one phrase in that song. Now, the song is about salvation through the blood of Jesus. That's what the topic is. But in my mind, I'm thinking about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's real, it's real, I know it's real. Thank God the doubts are settled. I've been a year getting them settled. I know it's real. And I said, yes, yes, it's real. Yes, it's real. Now, I'm driving this little lark. A little lark. It's like a, a little matchbox car. It's a lark. It's a, like cut off on the front and cut off at the back. Kind of a boxy thing. And the next point where I'm aware of what's going on, I have pulled over to the side of the road. It was a, it was a stick shift. I had this thing in neutral. I had pulled out the emergency brake. And I had my hands on the top of the roof of the car, speaking in tongues. And I came to myself. I mean, what happened between the time when I was going, yes, 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 and this? I don't know what happened. But when I recognized things again, this is what was going on. And I'm speaking in tongues. Yes, it's real. Hallelujah, it's real. And you know, people tried to talk me out of it. My deacon board at church, when they found out what happened to me, they tried to talk me out of it. I said, you can talk to your purple in the face. I'd, it took me a year to get here, and nobody's going to talk me out of this. And not only that, I've already experienced it. I know it from a biblical perspective, but I know it from experiential. And you guys can talk all you want to. I know it's real. And they said, but it's not our doctrine. I said, well, if it ain't, it ought to be. Because you said in the 1690, whatever, the, the, the confession of faith, that we believe the Bible from cover to cover. It's the inspired word of God. Because you see, I had preached on it for a number of weeks. And they said, oh, we know it's in the Bible, but it's not our doctrine. That's why I told them it ought to be. So you need to make Jesus your Lord. You need to have a personal Pentecost. You need to renew your mind with the Word of God. And you know, that's a lifetime process. So start today, if you haven't already. Number four, you need to obey the Scripture. 
what it tells that you and I should do to meet the conditions of the promises. We need to obey. Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 20? Teaching them to obey what I have commanded you. You know, that's one thing that we are pretty light on in the Christian circles today is obedience. In fact, I think Dale Carnegie wouldn't like that much to be talked about, about winning friends and influence and people. Talk to them about obedience. You trying to put me in bondage? No, I'm trying to get you to experience the benefits of the kingdom of God. So the reason God wants us to obey is so that we can work with him to advance his kingdom. Jesus is Lord in every respect. I want to conclude today by giving you a few scriptures that you already know. And you need to make these so much a part of your life that if somebody punches you at midnight or two in the morning out of a dead sleep, you come up with these scriptures. Jesus lives in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know the big difference between the new covenant and all the other covenants? He's in you. He's not just with you. He's in you. Oh, God, be with me today. Worthless. Don't say that again. Worthless. If you're born again, he is with you. You can't get any closer to you than in you. How are you going to get from one side of me to the other side of me on the inside? No, he's in you. He's in your spirit. 24-7, 365 and one quarter days a year. From the time you made him Lord. He's in you. Secondly, You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every, 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 how many? Every one of them. So Lord, would you bless me today? Worthless prayer. Thank you, Lord, for blessing me today. That's the way you pray. Your word says that I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says, He has blessed us for everything you need for life and godliness. He's already blessed you with everything you're going to need throughout your whole life. He's already put it in your checking account, as it were. He's already given it to you. Well, I've never understood it that way. Well, just read the scripture and see if that isn't true. You are already blessed. Well, that's just positional. What I want him to do is make a withdrawal. Take some of my blessings out of my account and come down here and put it in me right now. How do you do that? This book. What did he say? Meditate in my word day and night and you'll be a success. That's what he told Joshua, wasn't it? Meditate in my word day and night and you, whatever you do will prosper. That was back then. We got something even better than that. Meditate in the Word of God. You belong to God. You're not your own. Uh-oh, now we're getting serious, aren't we? You are God's property. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? 
Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This room is not the temple. This building's not the temple. The redeemed spirit of the believer is the temple. It's the sanctuary. Your body is the temple of what? The Holy Spirit whom you have from God. You're not your own for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit which are God's. Your spirit belongs to God. Your body belongs to God. Because you're in a covenant. Remember that? You're in a covenant. The new covenant. So, remember you belong to God. And as someone belongs to God, and God says, I want you to do this, you know what our response should be? Yes, Lord. I'll do it. You've, you've probably read that poem, been around for years, where the guy sees the footsteps, the footprints. And he said, well, God, I see there's places here where there's only one set of footprints. When I was going through great trouble, where were you? And God supposedly answers the man and says, that was when I was carrying you. Do you know, when God says, I want you to do, and he says that to me, I want you to do, and we say, but Lord, I got a better idea. I had the audacity one time to say to God, I only said it once. God, if you will keep up with me, we will win the world. Thank God for his forgiveness for our stupidity. He's forgiven a lot of that for me. You know, finally I realized, hey, it's all about him. It's all about him. See, the word says, I and you belong to him. We are his. Nothing we are, possess, or ever will be is really ours. It's all his. It's his body. It's his church. It's his spirit that lives in us, that gives us life. It's all about him. So how will we live it? For his honor, for his glory, or for us? Say, so, well, I don't, I'm not sure I want to make an open-ended commitment to God like that. He might ask me to do something I don't want to do. I'll guarantee he's going to do that. He not, not only might, he will do that. But you see, if you're not your own, He's got the right to do that. We are His servants. We're His servants.